0: Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like, and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, means which means it is time for the next president, making this week's book of the week. A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland by Troy Seneck. Now, I had an internal debate on which drink to make this week. I, I did have a cocktail I kind of liked, but frankly, I couldn't find all the ingredients for it in time. So I ultimately decided to just go with Plan B, or actually it's technically Plan A first, which was a simple German beer. Uh, part of why Grover Cleveland is going to be oh, sorry, a simple German beer, this will be the Flensburger Dunkel Dark Lager Beer product of Germany. Part of why Grover Cleveland put on weight and was so large was his love of German food and German beer. Uh, Plus, he was essentially just a good, honest man, so I kind of feel like a simple beer is more appropriate for him over any fancy cocktails. So let's do this. Grover Stephen Grover Cleveland I'm not sure when he started going by Grover but his first name was technically Stephen. Stephen Stephen Grover Cleveland was born March 18th 1837 in Caldwell New Jersey to Richard and Anne Cleveland. His father was a minister and the family moved around quite a bit when he was a child as his father relocated different parsonages. Now Cleveland was the fifth of nine children. He had two older sisters, two older brothers, three younger sisters, and one younger brother. So he was smack in the middle. Um, When he was 16, his father died, and Cleveland learned of his father's death while he was helping his sister to pick out a wedding dress. A passing newsboy announced that the Reverend Cleveland had died. And that essentially ended Cleveland's, like, childhood, such as it was. I mean, childhood in the 19th century was considerably different from what it is today. Um, And with nine kids and a reverend salary, the Clevelands needed all the financial assistance they could get. So Cleveland and the older boys pretty much helped with the household expenses from the time they were, like, you know, eight, nine years old. Uh, And Cleveland would get up as early as 4 a.m. to help with work on the docks, right? Now, when his father died, Cleveland stepped up. And he started taking on clerkships as far away as Manhattan so that he could send money back to help his sisters. And and he made sure to put, I think he put all of his sisters through college. And he, he, he very much believed in the importance of education. Uh, However, when the chance came for him to go to school, he declined it because the offer came with strings attached. Um, One of his father's patrons or I forget the exact connection, but it was somebody his father knew offered to put Cleveland through the through university if he would take um, like seminary classes and become the next minister, which Cleveland didn't want. I, I don't think he had anything against religion per se. He just didn't want to be a minister himself. And so he declined that offer and never went to higher education. Now, obviously, he made something of himself. He became president. So, how did that come about? Well, when he passed on the offer, and after making sure his you know, older siblings were set and that his family was more or less comfortable, he had decided he was going to go west to Cleveland, Ohio, and he was going to try and set up there. And on his way to Cleveland, he stopped at an, his mother's brother's house in Buffalo, New York, and his uncle convinced him to become a clerk at a law office in Buffalo, and Cleveland stayed there for like the next 25 years. He, he just never left Buffalo until he left Buffalo. Now, he did not serve in the Civil War. He would become the first president to serve post-Civil War who had not served in the Army. And his reasoning was pretty sound. Uh, Both of his older brothers were serving, and that left the care of his mother and remaining siblings entirely on his shoulders. If his brothers had died and he had died, the rest of his family would have gone down in poverty. So when his name was pulled for the draft, he paid somebody to take his place, which was perfectly legal back then. That, That was something you could absolutely 100% do and nobody would look at you with your you know, eyebrows raised or anything it was normal um, he, he I think took out a loan from one of the law partners to, to pay that person to take his place and then paid the law partner back because he was an honest man and this is what he did now from here his story becomes truly improbable to use the author's choice of adjective he was not a political person I, I mean he knew people who were involved in politics I should probably be drinking this um it's not bad. I'm not usually a lager person. I like prefer stouts, but this is not too bad for a lager. Is, it has a nice amber color to it. I like it, but I like German beer. Germans know how to make good beer. He knew people who were involved in politics. The most political post he held was a sheriff of Buffalo. Uh, he did that in like the mid 1870s and during that time he oversaw two executions which he did not enjoy but he was a man of incredible principles so he believed that while the law allowed him to put the duty on another he could pay somebody like $10 to act as executioner but he felt that he was the elected sheriff it was literally his job to do this so he made sure that the job was done right and not with huge crowds of spectators He, he built walls around the scaffolding so that the hanging wasn't a public display and then after his single term of sheriff, he returned to being a lawyer in Buffalo. And that's where he was. He, he was happily lawyering when the Democrats, of which he was nominally a member, approached him to be their candidate for mayor of Buffalo. Now... Him being picked as mayoral candidate was kind of a Hail Mary pass on the Democrats' part, since he had fallen out of the party with the favor due to his refusal of patronage system when he was sheriff. Uh, essentially, he was known to be an honest man and an honest politician. So he was an honest man, and he was known to be an honest man. And the, the Democrats were banking, banking on that honesty. He fell out of favor because he refused to take part in the patronage system, refused to give these plum like, deputy postings to, to party members. Uh, he literally applied the law equally to all, regardless of party politic. And at the time he was sheriff, the Democrats were not amused. But in the eight years since he'd been sheriff, the sting had been forgotten, and the Democrats needed a candidate for the election that was being held in 17 days. Yeah, 17 days. You heard that right. So October 22nd, 1881, Cleveland went to one of his favorite restaurants, and on entering, he joined a group of his fellow Democrats who were there drinking. And the reason the party had such a hard time filling the role of candidate is that the post of mayor was widely known to be extremely corrupt, regardless of which party held the position. Whether they're a Democrat or Republican didn't matter, it was a corrupt position. But, then again the sheriff's post had also been seen as highly corrupt, and Cleveland had managed to return some of the shine to that position, so they asked him to stand for mayor. And Cleveland nominally accepted. He he said, I will, but I have a requirement, and that's that I get to approve everybody else's on the ticket. If I'm going to be heading the ticket as mayor, anybody else on that ticket with me, I get final approval for. Now, Back then, there was no piecemeal voting. There was no, you know, I'm going to vote for a Democrat for mayor and a Republican for sheriff. You voted the ticket, period. So it was all straight line voting. However, at that time in Buffalo history, municipal posts were only for one year. So getting the rest of the ticket to step aside for, you know, 16 days now before the election, it was not that big a deal, right? Because they'd only be out of office for a year and then they could be expected to be back on. Now... Those who are basically entrenched in local politics would get a year off the job. The Democrats would get a win with someone who had a local reputation for extreme honesty and principles. So the Democrats all agreed, and he picked his own ticket. They then informed Cleveland of this on October 25th, just 13 days before the election. Now, the story has it that Cleveland was arguing before the New York Supreme Court when the committee came in and got Cleveland's attention. They kind of, like, waved him over, you know, so he came over, and after a discussion with them, he went up to the bench and said to the sitting justice, who was Judge Albert Haight, um, quote, This is a committee from the Democratic City Convention, and they want to nominate me for mayor. They've come over to see if I'll accept. What shall I do? And the judge said, I think you better accept. And that was that. Thirteen days later, he was voted in as mayor of Buffalo. And much as when he was sheriff, he did not feed into the patronage system. I don't know why, but everybody seemed to be shocked by this. He never supported the party politic, but everybody was shocked when he didn't, when he won. And I don't know, I don't know, people are weird. But for a brief year in Buffalo history, the mayor's office did not stink of corruption. And that became a matter of great frustration to the other Buffalo Democrats. Uh, the only time he took off in the year that he was the mayor, I mean, he was a hardworking man. He routinely worked like hour days uh, basically just stopping long enough to eat and sleep his career was his life the only time he took off was in July of 1882 when his mother was dying Uh, he had missed his father's death so he wanted to be sure to be present for his mother's death and she passed on July 19th 1882 now when his term as mayor of Buffalo was over he was immediately nominated for and won the post of governor of New York moving to Albany, New York for that work where he still refused to play the patronage game Now, patronage, if you recall from my last several reviews, has been a hot topic button for a while. Rutherford B. Hayes basically made that his campaign platform. He'd been attempting to reform the patronage system. James Garfield was assassinated over patronage, which led to Chester Arthur signing our first Civil Service Reform Act in 1883. So when Cleveland refused to feed into the patronage system, the Democrats saw this as a possible entry to the White House, which is a position no Democrat had held since James Buchanan pre-Civil War. So Buchanan was right before the Civil War. So he was uh, 57 to 61, technically. So no Democrat had been elected to the White House in 24 years. So the Democrats nominate Cleveland for the president in 1884 over the objections of Tammany Hall's honest John Kelly, and Cleveland won, becoming the 22nd president of the United States. And it wasn't easy, per se. I mean, the the opposition couldn't find any fault with any of his politics because he really had no political history. He was well known to be an honest man. Since they couldn't find anything wrong with that, they went with a smear campaign. And they pulled from the woodwork a piece of Cleveland's past, one Maria Halpin. Now... Uh, uh, Troy Senek does a very good job deconstructing the scandal and providing the timeline of events. Uh, the story that unfolded was that in approximately 1874, when Cleveland had been sheriff, he had been involved with Miss Halpin, and eventually he got her pregnant but refused to marry her. When her son was born, he was christened one Oscar Folsom of Cleveland, and this is interesting in that Oscar Folsom was Cleveland's best friend who had died in an accident leaving Cleveland as guardian of Folsom's widow and daughter. More on that in in a little bit. Now, Cleveland did not marry Halpin, but did provide financial support for her and her son. Maria had lost her job as a result of being an unwed mother and fell into alcoholism. Because of her alcoholism, Cleveland had convinced her to put her son up for adoption, paying her $500, approximately $12,000 in 2019 money, which is when this book was written. She, she just walk away. So put your son up for adoption, here's some money, go start a new life. And all of this was wildly scandalous in the 19th century because Cleveland was a well-known bachelor. There was no reason for him not to marry Miss Halpin. Um, there was no impediment to it. So refusal to do so was scandalous and and seen as taking advantage of a woman who women should, of course, be protected from their own folly, I guess. Anyways, Uh, mm -hmm. different times. You can't judge people on the past based on the mores of today. Back then, that was horrifyingly scandalous that she would have just been used and abused and left like that. Now, when his friend Charles Goodyear asked how to respond, Cleveland said, whatever you do, tell the truth. Which was characteristically Cleveland, and that kind of became a, look how honest he is, sort of a rallying cry for the Democrats. Now Cleveland never actually denied paternity, but his political allies were able to cast some reasonable doubt on the matter, namely in that Halpin had not just been with Cleveland. Uh, The child could have been somebody else's, whose is unknown, but Cleveland was latched onto by Halpin, according to Cleveland supporters, due to being the only bachelor, and so the only one available for marriage. And, And that's certainly a possible explanation. Another possible explanation is that the father of the child was actually Cleveland's best friend, Oscar Folsom, for whom the child was named, and that Cleveland took the blame to protect the good name of his deceased friend, as well as the feelings and moral sensibilities of Folsom's widow and daughter. Also, a completely reasonable explanation. But the real reason that doubt was ultimately cast on this story is that the source of the rumor was not exactly Sterling, and it wasn't Maria Halpin, right? I mean, if if that were the source of the story, then from the 21st century, we might look back and say, I don't know, man, that seems an awful lot like they're just not taking a woman at her word. But the source of the story was traced back to one George H. Ball, a Baptist minister from Buffalo who was trying to convince wavering Republicans not to jump the Republican ticket for Cleveland's much vaunted honesty. Ball figured if he could smear Cleveland enough, hit those right dirty buttons, then Cleveland would lose the election. Now Halpin is a real person. Cleveland was known to associate with her, and she absolutely had a child. These are all known established facts. Whether that child was Cleveland's is something we will likely never know. Historically, Cleveland's reputation for honesty and fair dealing worked very much in his favor here. And then when you dig a little deeper into the story, I mean, albeit from a remove of 140 years, Halpin was not a young woman when all this went down. She wasn't this naive young thing who, you know, was 16, 17 years old and got pregnant by the older man. She was a widow in her 30s. She was only a few years younger than Cleveland. She had moved to Buffalo, leaving two existing children with family in New Jersey. Uh, Cleveland did, in fact, act quite honorably. He became concerned about her drinking and so referred the matter to a friend of his, kind of a neutral third party, given that his own connection to the matter. And uh, that friend was Judge Roswell Burroughs, who spoke with Halpin and obtained her consent to have her son placed in an orphanage while she got help for her drinking and started a new life in Niagara Falls. Now, after that fact, after she had said yes, okay, and started her new life, Halpin changed her mind and was then unable to legally retrieve her child. Now, that is not between Halpin and Cleveland. That is between Halpin and the orphanage and the other authorities involved. Cleveland had had no part of that. So she, she kidnapped her child. Ultimately, the child was returned to the orphanage, placed up for adoption and legally adopted out of the system. And Halpin did start her new life. Now, when none of that story managed to unseat Cleveland as the truth kind of came out, the Democratic can and, and and the Democratic candidate seemed like he was likely to win the presidency. The Republicans then pulled out a infamous October surprise sort of thing, and claimed that he had in fact raped Maria Halpin. Now. At this point in the story, the author takes a brief sojourn to the 21st century, and I'm going to do the same. Uh, He explains that in 2011, Charles Lackman, who writes for The Daily Beast, wrote a smear book using all the bias and painting Cleveland as a child-stealing rapist. Um, If I had to guess, and I'm not real sure on this, but just a wild guess, that's probably around the time the libertarians started finding Cleveland an interesting historical figure, and so something had to be done to show why libertarians are depraved and wrong. I... It's kind of how the libertarians know we've hit something, we've hit like a sore spot, is when they start attacking people we like. We're like, oh, okay, all right, we got gotcha. you. I'm on to you, friend. Uh, about a decade after that, not even a decade after that, um, eight years later maybe, Uh, President Trump, then-President Trump, named Cleveland as one of the best presidents or most influential, something like that, and it was like chum in the water for Newsweek, Salon, and The Atlantic, who all trotted out the Cleveland as child-stealing rapist stories, all of which is bullshit. The problem with the Newsweek, Salon, and Atlantic stories is that, back in the 19th century, Halpin categorically denied all these stories— and said definitively that Cleveland is a decent man. He never raped me. He never stole my child. He was helping me out as best as he could. But, I mean, to back in the 21st century, I mean, to no one's surprise, the political hack Rags just completely ignored the voice of the victim, re-victimizing her from the grave. Because that's what they do in order to sell political narrative. Yellow journalism never changes. So with the help and scandal safely behind him, Cleveland is voted into office and sworn in on March 4th, 1885. And immediately the patronage seekers start contacting him, and he declines them all, leaving every basically anybody who is competent in office kept their place. And when he's not the first president to do so, John Quincy Adams also left several positions in the hands of the opposition based on competence. And I feel like there was one or two others who may have maintained status quo based on competency. But This didn't win him any favors. What also didn't win him any favors was the uh, Grand Army of the Republic. All those veterans from the Civil War were filing claims against Civil War benefits, you know, Civil War veterans benefits, and he would reject them, not without cause. Uh, One of the stories that really stuck in my mind was was there was a a guy who had filed a claim saying that he broke his leg and it healed slowly or poorly because of a, a shot to the leg that he had taken during the Civil War. Only when Cleveland investigated the matter, he found out the guy hadn't actually been shot in the leg during the Civil War. He'd been on leave at the time that he allegedly was shot. So graft and criminal misuse of funds were rampant, and he was putting a kibosh on all of that. He vetoed some 414 bills during his first four years of presidency, which is more than double. All the rest of the presidents combined up to him, which... I love a good veto, but I love that story. That's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. Now, the overriding concerns of his first administration, they actually stayed the, second for his, the same for his second administration, were the gold standard and tariffs. Now, here, incidentally, is why modern-day libertarians have embraced Cleveland as the standard bearer of what a president should be. Or more like, there is a lot to like about the man, but his absolute faith in the value of a gold-backed currency is high on that list. Uh, He knew without the gold backing, it was just paper. And historically, he knew that diluting the value of the currency with silver would result in devalued currency. I learned that, or I learned more about that, I should say, when I read the book on Byzantium a year, a little over a year ago. But he fought tooth and nail against adding silver as a currency, which could be used to pay out dollars. So what does that mean? Uh, we're, I mean? We're 50 years removed from the last time the U.S. had a gold-backed currency, so let me explain that really quick. Dollars in the 19th century was, were an easy form of transport, paper currency weighing considerably less than gold. But that paper currency could be taken to any bank in the United States. I I think you you might have had to have an account with the bank, but I'm not going to swear to that, but basically any bank in the United States in exchange for actual gold in the amount of the gold designated on the paper currency. So, a $5 bill that said, you know, backed by the full faith and trust of the U.S. government. Uh, and you could still find some of these are collector's items. Or they're actual gold backs, right? The front of the bill will be in gold and green. The back of it will have a uh, gold ink on it. And it's redeemable for actual gold in that value. Or it used to be. I don't think the government honors those anymore because why would they? But yeah, you could take a $5 bill to be exchanged for $5 in gold on a one for one exchange. And When Congress started to seriously consider silver backing, this caused a panic and a run on the banks, and our gold supply started dwindling. And that's what Cleveland was fighting against. Uh, The other matter was the tariff. Now, Congress loves tariffs. They love their taxes. So do modern-day presidents. Cleveland, when he took office, knew nothing about tariffs. He, he, he hadn't been a politician. He'd been a lawyer. But instead of outsourcing the thinking on that to somebody else, like our modern politicians do, he actually took the time to learn about the tariffs himself. And what impresses me is that... God, he must have read Bastiat or something. But he reached the conclusion that the best way to help the working man was to lower the tariffs. Because with lower tariffs, the cost of everything lowers. Be still my beating heart. I love this man. Absolutely love this man. Uh, That logic fell on deaf ears with Congress, who was more worried about keeping their powerful, moneyed allies happy, and those allies wanted higher tariffs to protect their own interests. Now, his stance on gold and on the tariff did not win him any friends, either in Congress or with the people, who... Honestly, the tariffs and finances is above the head of most people they don't genuinely understand it which is why they are easy buttons to push and manipulate for modern politicians what did win him the love of the people was when the bachelor president married in the white house becoming the first and i believe only president to actually marry in the white house meaning the ceremony was literally held there Yeah, when John Tyler married, they married in New York. So his bride also kind of raised eyebrows 140 years later as she was the daughter of Oscar Folsom and legally Cleveland's ward. I get that that raises eyebrows. Some of the same rags that trotted out Cleveland as rapist stories trotted out Cleveland as groomer stories. Except that he wasn't. Um, His guardianship of young Francis and her mother, Emma, was on paper only. Uh, Essentially, the laws in 19th century New York required an administrator for Oscar Folsom's estate because he died without a will. Cleveland, being Folsom's best friend, and they were known compatriots, was placed in that role, but he essentially was hands-off. He he left the Folsoms alone to live their lives. Uh, The only real indication of any contact or assistance is when, as mayor of Buffalo, he wrote a letter of recommendation for Francis Folsom to attend Wells College. And uh, somewhere in there, he must have actually met her in person. And when he decided he was interested in young Francis, he quite appropriately asked her mother for permission to write to her and court her, which was perfectly appropriate for 19th century standards. Um, When they married, Francis was 21 to Cleveland's 49, which is an age gap of 28 years. Uh, This is not, incidentally, the largest age gap between president and spouse. That honor falls to John Tyler and his second wife, Julia Garden Tyler. Uh, John Tyler was 54, and Gardner was 24, making their 30-year age gap the largest in presidential history. I suspect much was probably made in the 21st century about a comment Cleveland once made to his sister. Uh, One of his sisters asked him if he was ever going to be married, and he replied, quote, I'm just waiting for her to grow up. The uh, problem with making that into a thing is that that comment was made to his sister before Francis was ever born. So the timeline would have to be really conflated to make that creepy it was most likely meant as a joke between siblings and just a hundred years later it's used to bludgeon him post-mortem as being something he wasn't he was fundamentally a good and decent man america loved frances folsom cleveland and she was absolutely beautiful i will uh, i will find a picture of her and get it uploaded over here posted over here but she was beautiful beautiful young woman She became an immediate sensation and rose wonderfully to the challenge of being an icon. Cleveland, who had never forgotten nor forgiven the press for their treatment of him over the Halpin scandal, became outraged by their obsessive following of his young bride. And she basically just laughed it off. And she handled it gracefully and wonderfully. She answered questions and defended her spouse against you know those same yellow journalists who tried to claim that he was beating her. She's like, no. She didn't even joke on that one. She's like, no. He's never hit me. Shut, shut your whore mouth. He's never hit me. She probably didn't say that. She was a lady. I am not. But, Yeah. She, was, she is the youngest actual first lady to date. And I say actual because Andrew J- uh, Jackson had used his daughter as the White House hostess because his own spouse had died. Um, of the first ladies, only Dolly Madison and Jacqueline Kennedy rival Frances Folsom, Cleveland, in popularity with the people. And she was much loved by the American populace. And at the end of his first term, Cleveland won the popular vote but lost the election to Benjamin Harrison. Not, not unusual. I know people made a big deal about that with the whole Clinton-Trump thing, but it's not that unusual. On their way out, Frances told the White House steward to take care of the house for when the Clevelands came back, and the steward asked her when they planned to visit, and Francis said, oh, we'll be back on March 4th, 1893, and she had absolute faith that Cleveland would run again and win. Now, during the four years out of office, Cleveland basically enjoyed retirement, and he worked nominally for a law office in New York City, but spent a lot of his time hunting and fishing. Francis gave birth to their first child, Ruth Cleveland, who also became a sensation by virtue of being Francis' daughter. And yes, yes, they were very entertained. The president had a family at the, you know, ripe old age of, you know, 48, 52, whatever he was, but really it was Francis who was the appeal, and by extension, Ruth. And Cleveland began to inadvertently lay the groundwork for his reelection. I I genuinely don't know that he intended this to happen. I don't think he meant to stand for president a third time. Okay, one of the benefits of being a president is that post-presidency you are or were, I don't know if they still do this, but you're granted free franking for life. What that means is free postage, all right? You could mail letters and it would not cost you anything. And so when people started writing to Cleveland, he responded to every letter personally every single one. Now, okay, granted, the population of the United States was not 323 million back then, but this created a groundswell of popular support for Cleveland that got him nominated and re-elected in 1892, becoming the 24th president of the United States. So he's the only president to date that we have that has served two non-consecutive terms. Now, his second presidency was not quite as smooth as the first. The tariff and gold standard remained his overriding concerns. The, um, we had a lot of drama going on with Hawaii and Nicaragua. He handled all of those as best he could, but the overriding concern that met him was cancer. Uh, Cleveland had been an avid cigar smoker and tobacco chewer all of his life. On May 5, 1893, he noticed a rough spot on the roof of his mouth. He asked his wife to look at it, and she said it looked like there was a lesion. Now, much as Arthur had hidden evidence of his Bright's disease, Cleveland hid evidence of his cancer. Uh, But he also knew something had to be done, right? Cancer is not the sort of thing you can just ignore. If there is any chance to remove it, you do so and prolong your your livelihood, right? And if he did nothing, the cancer would likely kill him before he finished his first term. And that thought left him cold because his vice president, Adlai Stevenson, was a proponent of the silver standard, which Cleveland was quite adamantly against. God bless him. Of course, on the other hand, if he died on the operating table, the same thing would happen, but he had to take his chances. So he very carefully and casually, and not casually as in he didn't know who, but as in they were working very hard to not draw attention to this fact, assembled a team of very discreet surgeons to undertake the operation, which took place at sea on a boat. Basically, they wanted to avoid any scrutiny from someone who might notice the seven doctors and one president entering a location, and so they picked up the doctors at different points along the shore and then picked up the president last so that nobody knew what was going on. And it worked. And you're like, F- if it didn't work. Uh, I, if I ever want, need to get surgery at sea, I want that team working on me even though they're all dead. i mean, like, just come back from the dead and visit me, please. Uh, they did remove a rather large tumor from his soft palate. He lost a couple of teeth, but they got the whole thing. And he did all of this over the congressional summer break because at that time, no one was expected to be in Washington. Congress wasn't in session. It was a good time to do it. So he was able to rest and heal and recuperate at the family home at Gray Gables. And while resting there, a dentist created a rubber prosthetic for the roof of his mouth so that he could continue to talk normally. And for 20 years, no one knew. Almost no one. There was one journalist who managed to run down the story off of a rumor and did a good job, I mean, a very credible job, and that poor bastard had his career ruined in the denial and cover-up, only to be vindicated in the 1920s when the principal surgeon admitted it was all true and that the story, as far as the journalist had told it, was completely accurate. Um, while Cleveland was known to, I mean, not outright lie, but he might withhold salient facts, so lie through omission— This is the only outright lie he's known to have actively told, and one could argue uh, national security because the country might have panicked if they heard their president was dying even though he wasn't at that point, he he was recovering, it's still to me inexcusable because I'm I'm not just a free speech absolutist, I believe in the absolute truth, but I understand his reasoning too. Doesn't mean I condone it, but I understand his logic. The only thing he really did that made me raise an eyebrow and go, hmm, and I'm still moving him to number one on my president list. He actually just bumped John Tyler down a notch, but this is a pretty big black mark. So I'll go over all of that. So what he did is he made a deal with the devil. And I don't mean that literally, obviously, but, like, damn near as much. As the panic and depression of the 1890s continued to strengthen its hold on the nation, the gold reserves the government had on hand were rapidly dwindling. Um, when Cleveland left the office the first time, they had, like, a $60 million in gold in reserves. And at the time this deal was made, we were down to $9 million. So they were rapidly fading. So Cleveland and Treasury Secretary John Carlyle contacted the richest man in America, financier John Pierpont Morgan of modern-day J.P. Morgan Chase fame, and asked him to purchase $100 million in gold from Europe and then sell that gold to the U.S. Treasury for bonds. Uh, J.P. Morgan negotiated the deal down to $50 million in gold and higher interest rates with only half the gold coming from Europe and with his knowledge of the markets morgan was able to convince them to take the deal as the us had less than 9 million in gold left on hand and there was an incoming withdrawal of 12 million pending rough as it was not accepting the deal would have forced the us government into bankruptcy which hey they have like one job right and i and i get it the the, the author Troy uh, Senek goes into some of the logics and reasonings being that you know that those Dollar bills that are printed out are essentially never-ending draw against the government economy because they just go back into circulation, back into circulation. That is part of the flaw with a with a fiat or in this case half fiat currency. But a simple workaround to that would be when the bill is returned to the treasury, it or, or returned to a bank, it gets sent back to the treasury to be held until such time as it is needed to pay out another bill of some sort. That would have been one way to work around it. Is all money's collected gets sent back. You know, the bank can keep x amount of bills on hand until, you know, it, uh, trading it back for gold. So if somebody brings in gold, they can be paid out in the in the dollar bills. I mean, there was a bunch of things that could have been used to handle that but never were, and it left Cleveland in this position of having to make this deal or else have the country go bankrupt under his watch, which he didn't much care about his reputation, but he did care about the American people, and I don't think that it could ever be said he didn't care about the American people, and I mean all of the American people. Okay, um, he he was not a racist or a bigot. He had uh, Frederick Douglass over to the White House, Frederick and his wife, Frederick Douglass and his wife, to the White House on multiple occasions for dinners, and Re- Douglass was a Republican. He genuinely didn't care about politics; he cared about the people, and he acknowledged that. And I think this is why he's. Bumped Tyler down because they were both strict constitutionalists. But Cleveland certainly allowed for the fact that the Constitution had been amended legally, slavery was now completely outlawed. They were grant former slaves were granted equal rights and access under the, the 14th Amendment, and so he treated them as equals. And that to me is huge. So, but again, John Tyler was a man of his time, so was Grover Cleveland, but he rose above his times because the times certainly especially in the Democratic Party, condoned blatant racism, and he never caved to that. He treated men as equal no matter who they were. And and that, to me, is is all I need to know about his character. So, anyways, he took this deal at a time when America had an 18% unemployment rate, which is huge by any metric. Uh, and that laid the groundwork for J.P. Morgan to repeat this hat trick in 1907. And ultimately, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913 to the everlasting detriment of America. Cleveland was an outstanding president. And Senec makes an excellent argument for that point. Well, his president may not, presidency may not have been the glowing, shining beacon that some of the other ones are. He was an outstanding president. As far as I can tell, he was the last president to believe that he actually worked for the people and not for the party. During his first term, he issued all those vetoes, 414 vetoes. Um, And I would love him for that alone. But his absolute honesty, his ironclad belief that he worked for the people... And not the party, his belief that Congress had a duty not to waste the money that came into the Treasury. They All all these things make him stand out as a blazing beacon of what a president should strive to be, and yet none sense seemed to even give a shit about. And I say that knowing that I may be adjusting that assessment as I learn more about the next few presidents. I, I actually have high hopes for Calvin Coolidge, but man, after reading this book, I am ready to put a sign up on my lawn that says, you know, Grover Cleveland 2024. A man of iron evermore, something like that, like something rhyming and catching because he was outstanding. Personally, his personal life, uh, he ultimately had five children. He had three girls, Ruth, Esther, and Marion, and then Francis and Richard were the two boys. Ruth sadly died at the age of 12 of diphtheria. The rest of the Cleveland children never entered politics. Uh, they seem to have inherited their father's humility and never rode the Cleveland name to fame. When Cleveland left the White House for the last time, the family settled in Princeton, New Jersey, and Cleveland taught a series of lectures on campus there, becoming, I believe, a trustee. He helped to push through and found the uh, uh, doctoral program. He was very worried about how he would support his family, because he never invested when he was in the White House. He believed... God love him. We we, we seriously need another Grover Cleveland. He believed it would be improper to invest in the markets with his inside knowledge of which laws would affect that market. God bless him. I really was born in the wrong time. Like, further proof that we need more men and women of this caliber, right? Another reason I would totally vote for him if he ran today. Um, which he can't and I can't because he died on June 24th 1908 in Princeton New Jersey where he is buried next to his daughter Ruth and his wife Frances who died in 1947 she is the one of two first ladies former first ladies to remarry after their husband's death the second of course being Jacqueline Kennedy Uh, this book was excellent it brought to life one of America's most overlooked but amazing presidents Um, and he was that rarest of all political birds a good man Like, a man who genuinely believed in the principles of the Constitution and lived by those principles. Um, And he genuinely believed that he represented all of the people, not just those who voted for him. And I know that politicians today like to say that. It makes a good soundbite, but they don't really mean it. or They are working in the interests only of those who voted for them and not for we the people. He didn't just pay lip service to it. And we seriously need another Grover Cleveland. Like, in the worst way, we need another Grover Cleveland. Um, Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure they broke the mold when he died, much to the sorrow and tragedy of America. And that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, and I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.